0: Chapter 9 of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9. As Amy had expected, hoped, and not feared, the entire management of the Dand household drifted into her hands. She had guessed Mrs. Dand's idiosyncrasy correctly. The shadow, not the substance, of authority was all she cared about. If someone would silently do the work, and allow her to assume the credit of it, she was well content, and loudly hailed the tact that procured her the maximum of importance with the minimum of trouble. Amy domineered as modestly as possible. She had compassed her desire. It was her nature to organize, to direct, and for the weal of others, sooner than that of her own. Yet she was frightened sometimes, on reviewing her position, to find how all-powerful she had become. Slowly but surely, this posse of comfort-loving, incapable women had come to depend upon the slight, urgent girl, for her judgment in every decision, for her influence in every concession that they wished to wring from the autocratic master of the house, who had once been a sad stumbling-block in the way of feminine improvements, "'but whom Amy could manage as no woman had ever managed him before. "'It became a sort of game. "'See if you can get him to do it, Amy.' "'Or a bill was thrust into her hands "'to be adroitly placed before him at the right moment. "'Thus she practised on his mental laziness and dislike of trouble. "'She tempered his undeniable miserliness for them, "'while saving his money for him in other ways. "'She made him comfortable.' he had never complained but that was something quite new everybody felt the change servants ceased to find swarland hall too dull a place to live in the men left off grumbling the maids refrained from making mischief amy did what she liked with them all she actually took on herself to choose the new pair for mrs dan's carriage though horseflesh was hardly in her province The proof of the horses was in the driving, however, and Mr. Hodges said they were all right. Soon an entirely efficient and affable staff filled the offices and stables, all except Annie Dawes, the cook, a survival of evil, uncared-for days, whom Amy had not as yet found an excuse for getting rid of. She meant to compass it, though, all in good time. The daughter of the house, the only clever member of the group, could easily have held her own, had she cared to oppose the usurper. Dulce, however, took no interest in anything outside her own life that centred in her ridiculous little maid's room, full of dull eastern brasses and grubby craton. It contained her library of rare and racy books, her various fetishes, the idol from Benin that smelt, the row of china pigs on the mantelpiece that Mr. Millicent had given her. "'the scratchy whistlers and beardsleys on the walls. "'The air of it was pervaded by a mingled smell "'of incense and cigarette and mongoose, "'for Dulce was one of those people "'who rejoice in the love of animals "'which they are too lazy or stupid to look after. "'Amy did it for her. "'She did everything for everybody. "'It behoved her to make friends. "'For she had broken through her great rule.' she had been foolish enough to attach herself to one member of this family at least to leave now would be a wrench a considerable wrench she loved mrs dan's child and was prepared to make any sacrifice of time trouble and consideration if she might be permitted to abide in the same house with the little girl she had stolen a daughter's affections away from her mother it was their guilty secret a secret of which the innocent child was however quite unaware amy had been thus far loyal but she knew that it was a risky game that she was playing in the even calm seeming backwater on which the girl's frail bark plied she was sensible that her indefensible appropriation of another woman's property might stand for the dangerous weir in which her own fortunes might happen to go down and be engulfed some day Mrs. Dand did not love Arina in any real sense of the word. She did not even care for her, but she was proud of her. The little girl represented a beautiful adjunct to her matronhood. My child! Its affections belonged to her by divine right, and she expected to retain them, without, however, making any special effort to do so. Why, indeed, should a mother strive and manoeuvre for nature's own indefeasible gift? Amy knew she must not filch it. She was forbidden by all the laws of propriety and expediency. But a child could not have too much kissing. No one dreamed of her greedy, grasping, passionate love. No one was permitted to surprise her stolen kisses in lonely nurseries, her rapid embraces in dark angles of the corridors of this contorted, twisted old house, favorable enough to any sort of lovers' meetings. The child's own mother still ran, in nursery parlance, to catch it when it fell. Only Amy always happened to be the one who first heard the screams that heralded such nursery disasters, and honourably made its pressing need of comfort known in the proper quarter. She knew this was right. A mother's place is beside her child with a bump on its forehead, or a thorn in its finger. Amy fully realised that unwritten law of motherhood, Edith must have all the privileges, while Amy took as many of the penalties of the state as she could. No woman with a really guilty attachment to hide ever worked as hard at its concealment and furtherance as did Amy over the comparatively innocent passion to which she had succumbed. Ridiculously enough, it was for glimpses of a white starched muslin frock that her eyes turned furtively to the doorway. It was for childish babble that she listened, and a baby's name that she breathed, like Parisina in her sleep, a name she dared not breathe by day. She scarcely gave a thought now to the other secret, held inviolably or otherwise by Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson and she were good friends. In whichever way he chose to spell her name, he could only pronounce it in one. There was not much danger. Everything was so interlocked. Mr. Dand had left her in Paris, to all appearance under the questionable protection of Sir Mervyn Diamond. His verdict on that count was recorded in his invitation to her to form a permanent member of his household. Was he aware, furthermore, that she had spent three months in London with Sir Mervyn as his secretary? Had Mr. Johnson told him? Maybe. But at least he had not warned the ladies. Their loving attitude towards her testified to that omission." she wondered if Mr. Dand had thought fit to tell his new wife that Amy had been in the service of the last. That fact there would be no harm in ascertaining from his daughter. "'No, Edith doesn't know, and father and I don't care to enlighten her. She would tell the old ladies at once, and that would be fatal. Do you know why we have them to live with us?' "'Kindness, perhaps.' "'No, not that. They are a source of income.' "'Shall I tell you what they pay, each?' "'No, don't,' replied Amy, conventionally, for, as a matter of fact, she always wanted to know everything. "'I could tell you, but even Edith doesn't know. Father and I have long since seen the wisdom of keeping our sweet show-wife in blissful ignorance concerning the things that matter. You see, she is a child that has never grown up. She is a case of arrested development.' "'Vanity is her motive power, and it's her very vanity that saves her. "'Dad manages the house, at least he did till you came, "'and if Edith dreamed for a moment of her own incompetence, she'd have a fit. "'She's nothing, she knows nothing. "'She can manage nothing, and yet she thinks she holds the reins. "'Why, she can't even give you a decent cup of tea. "'It's sure to be cold as ice or bitter as wormwood. "'Bless her!' She sees herself as a fair and saving presence, as the gracious Chatelaine. "'Oh, Dulce, how you do speak of the poor thing! Your father chose her, after all!' "'Oh, father would always have to be married. When my mother died he just had to have someone to fill her place. It was too good a birth to remain unfilled. I'm not ornamental enough to sit at the head of a table. Here is a fine old house and place. It must have a proper mistress.' and she must have a pretty neck to show his jewels off do you know she doesn't even keep them herself they aren't hers he hands them out to her those he thinks suitable for her to wear and she gives them back to him at night to take care of of course no because he likes to keep her meek and unpropertied just another gem and a poor one at that dull people are like inferior stones not properly faceted they can neither reflect nor give back light say solid merit cut en cabochon because it's such a pity to lose any of it you needn't stand up for edith she can stand up for herself she has a greasy way of getting what she wants that i hate when she thinks some of us are not behaving as we ought she goes up to bed and has a temperature she can send the thermometer up two or three degrees in her mouth just as a child can A horn was sounded, and the swish of a motor up the drive near where the two girls were sitting. "'Dad,' said Dulce, "'who's he got with him?' "'A young man,' said Amy dryly. "'He will probably be here for dinner, or even stay the night.' "'Then do please to fasten your dress properly. You hardly ever do, and I can tell by this young man's back that he is of the sort that likes tidiness, and is deeply pained by the sight of a button undone or a string untied.' not my sort, then. No, your sort carries papier-poudre in its pocket, and kneels at ladies' knees in ballrooms, so that everyone tumbles over his feet. You mean the baby, said Dulcie complacently. Yes, he wrote to me yesterday on brown paper with a packer's pen. Dad disapproves of Millicet. That is why I encourage him. Dad is right to let you sow your garden oats in peace, replied Amy serenely. Let us go into tea and be introduced to the man, and then I'll hear if I am to get a room ready. Mrs. Dand was already in her place in front of an elaborate installation of the social meal, about which everything was a kappa pie, except the commodity itself. In some houses the tea is never made, and the clocks never go. "'Mr. Dykinson, my daughter.' "'Miss Stevens,' pronounced the master of the house. "'Have you any tea, Edith? "'Weak, please.' "'You'll get it weak, father,' said Dulce spitefully, and Mrs. Dand smiled sweetly. She was no fool, even though her silver kettle did not, could not, boil. Amy glanced at Mr. Dykinson. From the way Mr. Dand pronounced his name, she could see that Mr. Dand did not think much of him. He was tall, slight, and correct in a sportsmanlike way. He looked stupid, but desirous of playing his part fairly in the social circle.' he would say as much as was necessary and no more. He was conceited, but morbidly anxious to do everything like everybody else. Even his shyness was perfunctory, and though fostered by his vanity, was merely the result of paucity of ideas. Amy observed that Dulcie, trying hard to make him talk, was on the wrong tack, while excessively anxious, for some reason or other, to be on the right one mr dand sprawling on his long low chair consuming tea-cakes and weak tea was an ungainly object his thanks for each cup as his wife handed it to him were inaudible he was very tired and yet his magnificent large discourtesy contrasted rather favourably with the mere gawkish taciturnity of the young guest whose nose grew redder and redder as dulce bored and bored him When the meal was over, the master of the house carried the guest off to the library, and the women were left alone. It had been ascertained that the young man was going to stay the night. "'He is the new partner, I expect,' remarked Mrs. Bowman. "'Amy, do come and pick up this stitch for me.' "'Don't you see he is a sportsman?' said Lady Medrow. "'And there was poor dear Dulce trying to recommend herself to him by talking to him about books.' "'I wasn't trying to recommend myself to him, Granny. "'I was only being civil to one of Dad's guests,' retorted the girl indignantly, "'flushing an unlovely brick red. "'He has a fine figure,' said Lady Medrow. "'I dare say Dulce and I will take to pulling caps about him before long.' "'As you neither of you wear caps,' Mrs. Bowman remarked, "'you will have to fall back on your hair, "'and I don't know which of you can afford best to lose at that game.' Neither Lady Medrow's wig, nor Dulce's scanty yellow bun, looked as if they could have withstood a prolonged siege. This was to be set down as one of Mrs. Bowman's nasty speeches. Lady Medrow never made nasty speeches. She was a man's woman. Many men have loved me, and I have not always loved them, but I have been able to keep them as friends. I have always thought there was something in me of Aspasia and Mary Stuart both. When I do wear caps, I shall adopt the Mary Stuart shape. The lambent smile with which her inflexible critic and co mother in law always welcomed any allusion to Lady Meadrow's aptness for the questionable roles of history duly appeared on Mrs. Bowman's face. Isabella Meadrow always talks of life as if it were one long underdressed fancy ball, she remarked in a loud whisper to Amy one part she don't seem to care for and that's the part of wife and mother and she ain't wise enough for aspasia the dear dean had a great respect for aspasia amy generally listened attentively when great adventuresses were mentioned but the weight of the opinion of the late dean of blois on the character of aspasia was lost on her for she felt bound to follow dulce out of the room the girl had fled with that look on her face which calls woman to woman amy found her in the far-off stable-yard with her face buried in her big newfoundland's neck the irony of it was that the dog did not like her animals hated Dulcie. she looked up as amy approached and rose shamefacedly with bits of straw clinging to her knees come in and dress said amy what frock are you going to put on to-night may i ask my old blue pity isn't it why i want it worn out it's wasting a chance said amy but she interfered no more dulce did wear her ugliest and most unbecoming dress with a dogged persistency of self-sacrifice by which amy realized the depth of her feelings it betokened an unloosening of moral moorings a complete transference of old ideals combined with savage vexation over her physical insufficiency to realize the new ones. She was too angry, too puzzled, to make any attempts at amelioration of the conditions attending her first real love affair. She was anxious to attract Dickinson. She was over head and ears in love with him, but no bedizenment, no feathers or beads for her. Dulce was a very odd squaw indeed. Luckily she was an heiress and had plenty of money. For once Providence had been fair in her apportioning of blessings. Amy did not condemn Providence in this case. Beauty or money on one side of the balance, and a husband on the other. It was as it should be. End of chapter 9 Recorded by Lisa Reichert